please turn to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25. You haven't been following with us in the evening. We've been going through the book of Jeremiah. And if you go to a restaurant and you like to drink from a straw, this is not the prophet you want to read. <laughs> he is giving his prophecies through a fire hydrant. So when you read this and you say, wow, what is going on for him to speak this way? Well, you have God's people who want nothing to do with worshiping him rightly. They are sacrificing their children, killing their children to a false god. They're allowing pagan idols to be in the place of worship, the holy place. They are going home and there's idols everywhere in the land. So if you see Jeremiah as a little frustrated, he should be. This is the problem with Judah at the time. So, once again, verses 15 through 38 will be like drinking from a fire hydrant. But it, does, it is justified, just so you understand. But once again, before we hear Jeremiah read and preach, let's ask the Lord to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Father, we come before you once again. And we know that your word is powerful. Your word is a, is a means of grace when we read it, when we hear it preached, O oh God. You strengthen us in our faith. You, you meet with us, Father. Your spirit strengthens our faith in such a way that we know you more and love you more. And we're enabled to die to ourselves and live in a righteousness. So, Father, we pray that through the reading of the word and the preaching of the word that you would do what you said you would do. We pray, O oh God, that the preaching would go forth and the reading would go forth and change hearts and strengthen the faith of our people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah as kings and as officials to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as at this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, all his people, and all the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz, and all the kings of the land of the Philistine, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Amnon, all the kings of Tyre, and all the kings of Sidon, the kings of the coastland across the sea, Dadon, Tama, Buzz, and all who cut the corners of their hair, all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mixed tribes who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of Media all the kings of the north, far and near, one of, after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth, and after them the king of Babylon shall drink. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk and vomit. Fall and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink, for behold... I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name, and shall you go unpunished? 
you shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. You therefore shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high, and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold, and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth. The Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked he will put to the sword, declares the Lord. Thus says, Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation, and a great tempest is stirring from the furthest parts of the earth. And those pierced by the Lord on that day shall extend from one end of the earth to the other. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall be dung on the surface of the ground. Well, you shepherds, and cry out, and roll in ashes, you lords of the flock. For the days of your slaughter and dispersion have come, and you shall fall like a choice vessel. No refuge will remain for the shepherds, nor escape for the lords of the flock. A voice, the cry of the shepherds, and the wail of the lords of the flock. For the Lord is laying waste their pasture, and the peaceful folds are devastated because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Like a lion, he has left his lair. For their hand has become a waste because of the sword of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. And thus ends the reading, the very word of God. In 2002, I officiated my first wedding. I was very young. I was a youth pastor and a man in the church said, hey, do you do weddings? I was like, I guess I can. He goes, pastor won't do it because he's out of town. You want to make a hundred bucks? I said, like, yeah, I'd do a wedding. That was my first wedding. And the older I got and the more ministry, I was in ministry longer, it seems that the students in my youth ministry were all growing up and getting married and they all wanted me to officiate their wedding. So I learned to officiate their wedding over and over and over again. And then some would say, hey, could you be a part of my wedding party? And I was like, yes, that's great. I'll be a part of your wedding party. And I would be a part of the wedding party. And it seems that there was a time in my life where it seems that I did nothing but go to weddings and be a part of weddings. And I started to learn about weddings. There's two types of weddings. There's the dry weddings and the ones that served alcohol. And I noticed the difference was a lot that had to do with the toast. The toast at a dry wedding was quite different than the toast at the wedding where there was alcohol served. I noticed the dancing was a little different also. The dancing at the dry weddings seemed to only last a little bit of time, but the, the dancing at the weddings that served wine and alcohol seemed to go all night. <laughs> I noticed there seemed to be a lot more cheer, you could almost say, at the wedding to serve the alcohol. See, we know that scripturally speaking, alcohol, wine, is a picture of a blessing of God. It makes the heart glad. Ecclesiastes 9, 7 says this, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Ecclesiastes 10, Zechariah 10, Psalm 104, wine makes the heart glad. Isaiah 25 is talking about that great day on Mount Zion where we will what? Eat a feast of rich food and a feast of well-aged wine. 
we know it was at a wedding that Jesus turned water into wine. It was his first miracle. But we also know the scriptures aligns, at least the psalmist does and the Proverbs do, about what takes place when you overindulge. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of sins that come with alcohol. We've seen people lose jobs. We've seen people lose families. We've seen people actually driving impaired and kill people. Proverbs will tell us who has woe, who has sorry, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has rent his eyes, the one who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. We see that wine can either be a cup of blessing or it could be a curse. Scripture speaks of it both ways. Scripture tells us to use wisdom. What Jeremiah is speaking here when he talks about the cup of wine, he's not speaking about the fun wedding. He's using the, the drunken stupor, those people who have no self-control, those people who go to it sinfully. He's speaking about those people, the drunken stupor, those who lose everything that the proverb speaks about. He says, this is the cup of cursings by which all nations will drink. It's a serious image. And if you're taking notes, you've got five points, all beginning with twos. We're going to see two cups, two houses, two paths, two animals, and two fields. Two cups, two houses, two paths, two animals, and two fields. And, and as we look at these two cups, you need to know that not all wine is created equal. Um, some of you know this because maybe you prepare for, maybe if you've purchased our communion wine before, some bottles are $1.99 and some bottles are thousands of thousands of dollars. And part of the difference is, is it mass produced for the masses or do people take care in making the wine? For instance, the mass produced wine, they could care less about how many grapes are growing on one vine. They've got one little area and they cram as much grapes as they can. They, they have a time limit. The fermentation process, they have to speed it up. They're on. They, got, they have basically chemists working with the wine because they have a clock. But the thousands and thousands of dollars of the, the, the bottles of wine that are worth so much money, there's no time limit. Right? There's not as many bottles, but they're special. Jesus even said he saved the best wine for last. And he says that at the wedding to Cana. And there seems to be two cups of wine. This is the cup that you don't want to drink from. Look at verse 15. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all nations to whom I send you drink. Now, I believe this is a vision. God doesn't have a real, real hand, Right? We know Jesus, the, the, the son of the living God, has a hand, but he doesn't have a hand. It's a vision. This is, the, this is a side note. This has nothing to do. This is just free. You've got to be careful when you say you saw a vision from God, right? Or I think I have a vision. No, no, no. What you're saying is there's more scripture now, but he sees a vision as from God. That's one of the ways God speaks to people, right? But now he's spoken to us through his son. There's no more. There's scriptures, and, and that's all we need. But he sees this vision, 
of God giving him a cup. And this is not a cup of blessing. This is a cup with the wine of wrath. In verse 16, they will drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending to them. He says, you're going to go and you're going to give them this cup and they're going to drink and they're going to drink it to the dregs. This is going to be a cup of wrath and it's not going to be good. See, God is slow to anger. He's long-suffering. In the Hebrew, we call that the long nose of God. That's the literal translation. That's how the Hebrew would hear it. God is very slow and compassionate, but he's got a breaking point. He's got a breaking point. He came to the breaking point with Judah. He came to the breaking point. And he's telling Jeremiah, you're going to go, and you're going to tell them, I'm at my breaking point. You're going to make them drink this cup of wrath. Which brings us to the second point where we look at these, the juxtapositions of these two houses. And, and it's really, when we, when we read about the house of David, we're really speaking about the dynasty or the kingdom of David. And this is not a hard concept. We've been seeing this through scriptures that there's always been two kingdoms. There's been the, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the devil, and there's been the kingdom of God. Those people who are with God, and they're his people. They're gathered to worship him. And look at verse 17 and 18. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. But who does he name first? Jerusalem. And all the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse at this day. See, Jerusalem's name first. This shouldn't shock you because this is where salvation comes first also, does it not? Jesus, does he not come to his own first? Does Paul, not when he goes from city to city, where does he go first when he goes to a city? He goes to the synagogue. He goes to them first. Acts 1, 8 through 9, right? It says, you shall be my witnesses in where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. It starts in Jerusalem. Salvation starts at the household of God. But at the same time, Peter will tell us as he reads Jeremiah and Amos and Malachi that judgment also begins at the household of God. This is really a working out of Luke 20, the parable of the wicked tenants, you know, where, where the man owns a vineyard. He owns this beautiful vineyard and he lets people tend the vineyard. He gives them everything. He gives them this great vineyard all the equipment that they need. He gives them everything. And he sends a servant just to say, can you just give me a little bit of rent? <laughs> just a little bit. I don't want the whole thing. I just want a little bit of rent. You know, I, I, I did put forward everything. I did build it. It's all mine. And they killed a servant. They killed another servant. So he says, I, you know what? I'll send my son. And then they'll listen. Then they just killed the son. And they'll say, you know, I'm taking all the inheritance. Does the owner of the vineyard say, you know what? I just can't do anything about it. No, Jesus says he will come to destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. They didn't like hearing this from Jesus. But the truth is, judgment will start in the household of God for those who have privilege, for those who have been given so much. We would do well to remember the words 
of John Ray's. In 1670, he wrote a book called A Complete Collection of English Proverbs. And he wrote this. First time we see it in English, what is good for the goose is good for the gander. The Brits would like to say the sauce or the gravy that's for the goose is also the sauce for the gander. Of course, the, the goose is the female geese. I don't know if the geese, goose, they say it all differently now. The gander's the male. Hope I have that right. But the sauce that is good for the goose is good for the gander. Something we see within scriptures, if God is going to judge Judah, do you not think he's going to judge the world? This is what Jeremiah is doing. Jeremiah is now moving from Judah, giving them the cup of wrath, and now he's going to say, this cup of wrath is going to go around the whole world. And look how he, he names everyone that he could think of here. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, all his people, and all the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz, and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Amnon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, all the kings of the coastland across the sea, Dadon, Tema, Buzz, all who cut the corners of the hair. This is what the Arabians did to show their royalty. They cut it in a certain way. 24, all the kings of Arabia and all the kings of the mixed tribes who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri and all the kings of Elam and all the kings of Media and all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth, after them the king of Babylon shall drink. Who escapes the judgment of God? No one. Oh, it starts in the household of faith. It will start among God's people. But the whole world will stand before the Lord and give an account. But you may ask, well, is that really fair? I mean, Judah had prophets going to them specifically. And we can understand Nineveh being judged because they did get a prophet, right? Or Edomites, they got a prophet. But but all these people that are named, I mean, they don't, they don't have prophets going to them. They don't have the temple. I mean, is it really, really fair that someone who has never heard of Jeremiah in this time actually be judged? See, look at the juxtaposition of Westminster Larger Catechism 150 and Westminster Shorter Catechism 84. Westminster Larger Catechism 150 tells us that not all sins are equally heinous. If someone shoplifts at Walmart, that's a little bit different than stealing a car and running over people. It will be judged differently if the judge is a just judge. Though all sins are not equally heinous, what doth every sin deserve? Where every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and the life to come. Okay, all you nations that are outside of Jerusalem, you may have never heard of Jeremiah, you may have never heard of Yahweh, but you have offended the holy and righteous God. By looking at nature, you know that God is not a God that you can make with hands. He is a God that has made you and made everything. You know that much that you can't make God into an image. And that's exactly what they do. This is exactly what they do. They've offended a holy and righteous God. 
So everyone will stand before the Lord and give an account for God is holy and righteous, including, verse 26, the, the king of Babylon. Now that should strike you because I just spent last month 20 minutes talking about how crazy it is that God calls Nebuchadnezzar, son of Nebu, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. When you look at King of Babylon, you may see a little footnote that tells you it's Ash Bath. If you've ever seen a, a Christmas story with Ralphie as he looks at that thing that says, oh, drink your Ovaltine, it's basically Jeremiah's doing the same thing here. He's not doing that to try to trick the Babylonians. He's not afraid. He's called out many of the Babylonians. He's doing it, in my opinion, to draw attention. He's a great poet. He wants you to understand something about Babylon. That even the greatest kingdom in all the world that is God's servant is going to be judged for sin. And anytime you see something highlighted like that in Hebrew, remember, they didn't have word processor. So everything they do a little bit different is to draw your attention. And it seems to me that Jeremiah is trying to teach us that even God's servants will be judged for sin. And that should be an underhand pitch for many of you preachers. Many of you who love Jesus. Why? Because you know God did judge his servant for sin. When he who knew no sin, Christ, became sin for us, he was judged. You see this throughout Scripture. And it's all pointing and screaming to Jesus Christ that he who knew no sin will be judged for our sin. And oftentimes, the prophets are always looking for that Redeemer to come. And you'll see it if you look hard enough in all your Scriptures. We've seen these two cups. We've seen these two households. Now let's look at these two paths. Jeremiah moves from the household of faith to Judah, and now he's preaching this worldwide judgment. And he's trying to warn people. See, when you read prophecy, oftentimes our mind goes to prediction of the future, prediction of the future. And that happens in prophecy. But if you remember that guy, Jonah, I know we talk about him getting swallowed by a well, and it's the coolest thing in my opinion. I know it's a fish, but I like saying well. But his sermon was the easiest sermon to ever memorize. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Nineveh wasn't destroyed in 40 days. Does that make Jonah a false prophet? No. The reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh is because he knew the character of God. He knew God was compassionate and would probably forgive the Ninevites if they repented. And he hated them. He wanted nothing to do with the Ninevites. No. In his mind, God will probably forgive them if they repent. I don't want to go. And God said, no, you're going to go. Whoever repents, I'll take them back. Even the cows, if they repent, I'll take them back. And if you've read Jonah, you'll pick up on that in a little bit whenever you read it. Jonah is not a false prophet. And what Jeremiah 
is doing is he is warning the nations. Part of what prophets do is warn. He wants the nations to know this is the bad news. But he knows that God will take them back. They need to know that they need to be forgiven. See, there's almost two paths you can go when you're sharing the gospel. You can tell someone that God is love, and He is. And part of the problem with a lot of our evangelism is we don't like sharing the bad news with people. We only like sharing the good news with people. But see, the problem is the good news is that Christ died for our sins. Look at what he says here, verse 27. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk and vomit. Fall and rise no more, because the sword that I am sending among you, and if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink, for behold, I begin the work, disaster at the city that is called by my name. And shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord. Just as the gospel goes forth worldwide, people need to know that his judgment is going forth worldwide. They need to know the bad news. The bad news is if you stand before the Lord and you don't cry out for forgiveness, you will get none. There is a cup of wrath that's going to go forth. And oftentimes, like what John Piper says, John Piper likes to share the story as he's preaching against the prosperity gospel. And he says, paraphrase this, not to quote his entire sermon, but someone gets a BMW. And someone says, you got a BMW? And he says, yeah, Jesus gave me that. Well, I'll take Jesus. Of course you will. Why? Because you want a BMW. Isn't that so often how we share Christ? You'll have a much better life now. Or you'll have a much better life in the future. Both of those things are absolutely true. You will have a much better life now, and you'll sure have a much better life in the future. I can guarantee you that. But Jeremiah knows for them to hear the good news, they have to know the bad news. And the bad news is you need to be forgiven. You can't cry out to God for forgiveness if you don't think you need to be forgiven. So many times we have politicians not even saying his name. Well, I'm a Christian, but I don't confess my sin because I have nothing to confess. Well, let me tell you, you're not a Christian if you don't have sins that you need to confess. Christianity is a religion where our sins are forgiven. The bad news is important. You can't praise God for your salvation if you don't understand your state. And Jeremiah is trying to tell the world, this is coming, but he's warning. He's warning. He's going to preach this sermon in Egypt when he gets there. Because he wants people to know that God is a God that forgives. Which brings us to the next part of our sermon. We look at two types of animals. And some of you may know, I have a great opportunity to hunt in Missouri on my in-laws property and I like to hunt in the sheep fields partly I don't like the cows because they're really big and they're kind of afraid of afraid of them a little bit I don't get anywhere near the bulls but 
But the sheep are absolutely hilarious. Before they got their big Akbosh dog, I used to go into the, to the fields where the sheep are, and the little tiny sheep would come right up to you. And the other sheep would show off their moves, their dance moves almost. They're jumping and playing. They love you. They're not going to knock you over. They just want to be petted. They just want to say, hey, another person to love me. They're absolutely lovable creatures. They're very unassuming. They're harmless. Quite different than a lion. Did you know for 15 years, from 1932 to 1947, there in Tanzania, it's modern-day Tanzania, that 1,500 recorded people were killed by lions. They started to attack people. They were hunting people. Lions like to hunt. They're, they're dangerous animals. They have raw power. They, they're, they're fearless. This is the reason you read verse 30. Read verse 30. You therefore shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high. The decibel of a lion's roar is 114 decibels. Just so you know, a jet plane is from 120 to 140. It has been said that if a lion roars with everything he has inside of him and you're next to it, you will go deaf. For five miles away, you can hear a lion's roar. And oftentimes, hunters, they die because they underestimate the speed, the power, and the stealth of these lions. See, God is going to roar. And the problem is people underestimate him so much. They still think he's a lamb. Which he is. Here you see the lion. You ever seen a an image of Christ or a picture. I know you've seen them all over. Some of you don't like them. I don't like them either. But when you look at them, it's not really Jesus for one, but, but when you look at them, you ever notice how effeminate he is? You ever notice that all the images and icons in many churches, it's like he's a little baby. Oh, I want to hold God in my hands. Why? They want God to be vulnerable and reserved and unassuming. That's not the picture of God here, is it? The picture of God here is that He's going to roar on high. Look at verse 30. He's going to roar from where? From His holy habitation. He's going to utter His voice. He will roar mightily against its fold and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh. And the wicked he will put to the sword, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation. The great tempest is stirring from the furthest parts of the earth. And those pierced by the Lord on that day shall extend from one end of the earth to the other. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall be dung on the surface of the ground. 32, there is a great storm coming, Jeremiah is saying. And you better take shelter. Isn't that such a different picture than what people want to paint of Christ? They want to be able to hold him and gather him. And yes, God is a God who loves his people. And he will shelter his people. 
But, but if you're not his people, he's going to be a lion. And it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good for people in that day. Which brings us to the fifth part. We've seen two cups, two houses, two paths, two animals. And now we get to look at two fields. There's two ways to see a field. You can either see it full or barren. If you're a farmer or a shepherd, you like to see your field full. I am neither, but I like to see my pantry full. I like it. I really like hurricanes because that's when we just say, okay, no matter what you get, you just get all the hurricane food you can, which is basically all junk food, and you fill your pantry with it. You could be going to North Carolina, you're going to fill your pantry just in case so you can get all this unhealthy food. But you like to look into your field if you're a farmer or a shepherd, and what you like is you like to see it full. This is not what the shepherds are seeing. They're not seeing a field of plenty. See, they had a responsibility. They had an opportunity to make sure that their flock was okay. They had an opportunity to make sure that their fields were full. But look what they did in verse 34. Wail, you shepherds, and cry out, and roll in ashes, you lords of the flock. For the days of your slaughter and your dispersion have come, and you shall fall like a choice vessel. No refuge will remain for the shepherds, nor escape for the lords of the flock. A voice, the cry of the shepherds and the wail of the lords of the flock. For the Lord is laying waste their pasture and the peaceful folds are devastated because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Like a lion, he has left his lair for their land has become a waste because of the sword of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. See, the shepherds abdicated their responsibility and did not watch their flock and now God is going to turn his Wrath upon them. See, this is a warning to elders in the church of Jesus. We're called to shepherd the flock, to care about their souls, to care about their holiness. It's a warning to us. It's a warning to, to parents, aunts, uncles, those in church, those who teach Sunday school, those who teach children. We cannot abdicate our responsibility of teaching them Christ and teaching them the holiness of God. It's really an example, it's a warning to all of us. What do we model for others in our lives? Whatever sphere of responsibility you have, doesn't matter what it is, you're called to share the gospel and live it out, and you're called to be concerned about holiness. Jeremiah is leaving no one out. Everyone in Jerusalem, everyone in the world, and especially the shepherds, those who were supposed to watch over the flock, and they didn't do their job. Like a lion, he has left his lair. Or as our friend Jack Lewis would say, he's on the move. As we close, there's two cups that you can choose to drink. A bitter cup of wrath or the sweet wine that comes from the Lord. And as you know, for us Christians, 
We know the rest of the story. That Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, can this bitter cup be passed? Do I have to drink this bitter cup of wrath as he's praying to the Father? And he said, there is no other way. He didn't get mad and go home. He didn't quit because he didn't get his way. He said, thy will be done. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He drank that bitter cup of wrath. Everything that's happening in Jeremiah, yes, real nations are going to be judged. Yes, there's going to be real judgment. They're all pointing though to Christ, going to Calvary, drinking the cup of wrath. So when we come and worship the Lord, we get to drink the cup of blessing. We got to do that this morning, and it was amazing. I pray that you will see Christ has drank the cup of wrath for you. I pray that you'll see him as a lion, not only a lamb. May we ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word.